giant robot smashing into other giant robots. So hey, hello Ben. How's it going? Going well, how are you? I'm super good. Uh, so we are here broadcasting live, and by live I mean not live. <laughs> yes. Uh, at the Summer Summit 2015. Woo. Which is pretty cool. Yeah, I'm enjoying it. Yeah, so this is weird because we get to talk to each other in person. Yeah, well I don't do that anymore with you. Yeah, true, because you live in Stockholm. That's right, and you live in Boston. I do. Yes. So this is unique. I love doing podcasts when people are here. You can actually like see them, and there's no Skype lag and all that. That's right. Yeah, last time we were videoing. That sounds right. You've actually so I was surprised to see how many times you've been on the podcast. Yeah, three. It was a number. It it was. It was greater than zero. It was, and it was more than I thought it would be. So we wrote down a list of some things to talk about, which is what we do when we have podcasts. Yes. Uh, you can see them, but I can't. Yes, they're right <laughs> behind you. Which is, yeah, we should have totally switched. Yeah. We wrote them up, we, so we have this like idea paint on the wall, and so we've written some ideas on the wall that's behind me, and as the host, this was a dumb idea, mm. but that's okay. Right. Uh, someone was asking me uh, just the other day about getting offices started, like getting ThoughtBot offices up and running and like getting business and whatnot, Yep. Uh, and I share with them that it seems like the Stockholm strategy, more or less, was like, what if we were the site of every meetup in the city? Yes, that, that was our strategy. Uh, and so the Stockholm office has been around for three and a half-ish years. Mm-hmm. And we now are involved with approximately six meetups a month. And that's like the recurring stuff. And yep. then sometimes we do one-off big events, uh, drink-ups or multi-hundred-person events. Mm-hmm. And this has been our marketing strategy, and it's worked decently uh, with some pros and cons. Mm. And so pro is we get to be really creative about what the events are, and it's sort of... It sort of comes down to, what am I missing in my life? I'll just make that. Yeah. And so on one end, we have the startup meetups that we were doing. We only did that for a year because it was, it was difficult to do, but it was focused on entrepreneurs and startups. idea was we get them together, have them talk. There would be three startups that would pitch to the crowd. Mm. Um, and it was just, they were limited. They only get eight minutes to do their pitch. Mm-hmm. And then the crowd got eight minutes to ask them questions. And I encouraged them to ask them really hard questions. Yeah. If they didn't, I would ask them, like, why should anyone invest in your product yeah. at all? Um, and then we gave them beer. And, you know, that works magic at meetups. That's super cool. Uh, but that was, that was, like, a difficult meetup to organize because you have to get people together. You have to, you have to make sure that they are a right fit. Mm-hmm. Things like that. At the other extreme is what I feel it might be the nerdiest meetup, uh, which is the Classical Code Reading Group of yeah. Stockholm. We talked about this in a previous episode. Okay, awesome. But, but tell us more. I will tell you all about it. So the idea is it's like a poetry slam crossed with a book club, but for programs, yeah, un- classic Unix programs. Yeah. So we've read classics such as True.c, Yes.c, Env.c. Uh, these classics have been... written and rewritten multiple times over the past 40 years Mm. so we look at we do a compare and contrast and what was the author thinking uh recently i've been spending time in new york city for this month and next month so i went to the new york city bsd user group Mm -hmm. chat with some people there and they are excited about this so i'm going to bring this to new york while i'm here super cool there and try to spread it around the world i like this idea i was inspired by the idea of Treating, treating the works that we use and the works that we read all the time like we do with Shakespeare. Mm. And, you, know, you, can, you can quote hackers, and you can quote Shakespeare, and those are, those are great you know, theater, 
Hackers is classic theater. Yes. Uh, so you do mean the movie Hackers? The movie Hackers. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Where they're trashing their rights. Right? That's right. And, like you know what Absolutely. that means, right? Yeah. You're gonna hack the Gibson. It, yeah. Yeah. Get in there. Yeah. Uh, and and so I want I want people to know to say things like yeah let's use a conditional like they do in cat.c. Right. Right. And so uh, and like, we have these new classics for us. Uh, and so, and the the works that we we create, we are artists. Yeah, uh, we are creating programming art all the time, right? We're coming up with clever solutions. Let's read what other artists have created. Yeah, that's beautiful, and that's why it's it's classical code. It's not just like oh, this is like common code, or like we just picked a thing at random. It's like these things have been around for a long time. Yeah, and so we can look at the ideas in them, and they've and they've lasted. So let's let's see why and what's in there. Exactly, they're, these are proven programs, and it's really interesting that they're proven because there's a there's a pragmatism between amazing, perfect, beautiful code and terrible code. Yep, uh, and it's nice to see the pragmatism and the compromises they make. And every so we compare OpenBSD, FreeBSD, GNU, uh, AT and T, Solaris. Uh, implementations of these, and everyone has their own different trade-offs. Um, we typically start with the OpenBSD implementation because it's almost always the simplest. Hmm. Uh, there, and that just goes with the OpenBSD philosophy of less code has fewer bugs and fewer exploits, and just it's cleaner and easier to maintain. I love that. Uh, at the other extreme, we have GNU. Uh, and that's almost always the last thing we we read. And for example, GNU's True and false dot C. Uh, true true dot C is two lines long, and the second line is include false dot C, and false dot C is maybe fifty five lines long. I got that, but it's in that order. Yeah. Um, for a program that simply returns true, That's, it doesn't print anything. Uh, well, false returns false. False returns false. Okay, good. True returns true. Doesn't print anything. Does nothing. It's it's literally just running a main function that only returns. Wow. Um, and that's a 55-line file. That's right. Wow. That's right. And it's, it's interesting why they made it 55 long right. and how they got there. This reminds me of a thing that I'm pretty sure I saw Sarah May talking about, which is assume when you read something that the authors were not idiots and that like there's a reason for code that looks bad. Yes. Don't just like make your default assumption like there's there's no reason this should be like this. So like you hear like 55 lines in false.c and you're like, wow, what a bunch of idiots. But assume, like, you know, they're coming from a reasonable place. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And like, the code's been there for ages, and it works well. And GNU's very successful it's at spreading their message and their so- software. Mm-hmm. And, and false and true are really fundamental programs. Yeah. Clearly it works. And so we talk about, like, what there's, there's things in there like uh, dash dash help, which is not part of POSIX and it's not part of BSDs. Um, but you can say true dash dash help, and it will give you some help. It will give you that help internationally. It, uh, it, you know, based on what language settings you have, hmm. right? Those kinds of things uh, complicate the code at the in exchange for making it more accessible. Uh, isn't that always the way? <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> huh? So you you run OpenBSD, right? That's right. Yeah, uh, I run OpenBSD uh, on my home laptop and GNU on my work laptop. Big fan of OpenBSD. Yeah, it was it was actually a couple of things that led me there, and the classical code reading group it was one of them. Oh. I've been using FreeBSD for the past fifteen years. And re- actually reading the code and comparing FreeBSD to OpenBSD code inspired me to not just install it, but contribute back. Huh. Because it is so accessible. It's so simple that you have this feeling of, okay, I found a bug. I know how to fix it. 
And then there's a very simple path to send that patch to the OpenBSD team and get that contributed. That's um, interesting. And you know, the, the OpenBSD mailing list gets a lot, a really negative uh, impression on people, uh-huh. uh, but it's actually very friendly. Uh-huh. Uh, the actual OpenBSD team themselves. Okay. Uh, and so I recommend contributing back to them because they will they will incorporate it, huh. uh, and from there it does spread to the other BSDs. It's interesting that it's so simple. Like you, like I read the code, and so then I started using it. And that seems like such a simple idea, but I feel like it actually doesn't happen that often. No, no, people people aren't into reading code. I feel. Yeah, and it's it's very fundamental to what we do. Yeah, I I, I kind of I have like mixed feelings. Like it's like partly like yes, you could. It's like if you want to choose uh, a JavaScript framework or something, you could go read all of the code for all of them, or like enough to kind of get a sense of it. But in a way, you're experience as an end user should maybe not matter like the code should not really matter on what it's like to use it kind, kind of hand wavy ish right right and, and especially as open source developers it's it's on us to fix things yeah um, there's no that's a good point yeah there's no industry backing it the, well even if there is it's still on us to fix things and we might as well take advantage of the open source aspect uh often when debugging even when debugging ruby i yeah. will end up in mri's c source code really yeah oh yeah i love diving in there i've never had to do that it's it's not so much a have to okay but for like the bug is not in mri but the bug is in my understanding of something okay and this is cases where the documentation is out of date documentation is wrong documentation is lacking yeah. but it's also cases where the documentation just can't be as good as the actual code right like the actual code is the actual code there's yep. no getting around there's no that. way to lie right and and not only is there no way to lie there's no way to be that specific and concrete about what it does right <laughs> totally it's definitely true. English is a poor substitute. Exactly, exactly. And so I'll dive in there and read the implementation of inject and get a better understanding of what I can pass to it and why what I'm passing does not work. Mm. I love the um, Python, I think, is it, it does this, where you can put examples in the doc string of yes. a function and have it auto-check it. That's right. Yeah, Python and a couple other languages are doing that now. Uh, Elixir, for example, has oh, cool. that. Nice. It's pretty handy. I feel like I want to write code with more like assertions in it. Totally. Like more pre and post conditions. Oh, yeah. The more code I write, the more I, I want to do that. Like that's, that, that seems to be, I don't know if popular, but like a very easy thing, at least in Closure. Mm-hmm. Like it's very simple to pass a map like as you start defining a function. Like, by the way, here are the, all, the, all these functions, all these uh, forms must evaluate to true. And beforehand, and all these forms must evaluate to true after. Yeah. Uh, and it's just, it's very appealing. Yeah, Eiffel does that. Yeah. And I think Ada... Contracts-based programming, I think is what this is? Yeah, yeah. And I think Ada does that too as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've never used those languages, but it seems great. Yeah. The more I... I feel like the more code I write, the more I want... Uh, like a support system. Yes. <laughs> the more I want types, I guess, <laughs> kind <laughs> of. Like maybe a type system, maybe conditions, like a pre and post condition, thing like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to kind of like put stakes in the ground and be like, we know these things are true. And like if we get past this point, we know things are good. That's right, yeah. I'm, and I'm still a bit of a fan of Haskell. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been writing it for like 15, maybe 10 years. Yeah. Something in that range, 10 to 15 years. Uh, and I love the idea of writing out the types first mm-hmm. and getting really specific with the types. And, and like the actual implementation isn't my goal. Uh, I use the types to understand my thoughts. Mm-hmm. It's very much type-driven program instead of test-driven programming. And that matches my, my brain. Mm. It matches how I think about code. Mm-hmm. What makes you say that you still sort of like Haskell? I really enjoy 
things like the types, the I.O. separation, mm-hmm. just like the general ideas in there. I don't feel comfortable with the things that object-oriented programming promised that Haskell did not promise. This is things like code sharing in libraries. It's collaboration. Huh. Um, you feel like that's lacking in Haskell? I feel like that's lacking. It was never really strongly considered. Uh, it's things like you can define records, which are like structs in C, but accessing them is annoying, and accessing fields in them is annoying, and it's very trivial to overwrite other people's functions by defining records. Uh, there's a lot of just, it's too easy to step on someone else's toes. Really? Uh, and it, it seems like that seems so antithetical to Haskell. Yeah, yeah. It seems to be obsessed with safety and things like that. And if it can just kind of blow away your function, that's a bit of a... Right, it'll either blow away your function or it will not compile. And I'm happy for it not to compile, but I want to be able to name my, my method or my function map, even though it maps over a different data type or even though it's not related to the actual map uh, function, mm-hmm. uh, like the functor map. Like I, I want to be able to have that kind of namespacing, and it's just not part of the Haskell culture to do that, mm-hmm. and, it's, and therefore they don't make it easy. Hmm. Um, yeah, and so, it, there's no private anything is, is sort of the problem. Hmm. Do you want private things? Does, do you need private things when you're in a functional language? Yes, because otherwise every function is public, and then uh, it's too easy to, to collide with someone else's function. Or you have to prefix every function with your initials. <laughs> a hash of your uh, home address. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, interesting. Okay, but so, uh, so aside from name collisions, let's say you had like, mm-hmm. some way of avoiding that, do right. we need f- par- private functions in like, functional languages? Hmm. Yes. It, so at that point, it becomes a social thing and, and not a technical thing. Like, I want to know that this function is exported and this function is not, or this function is the entry point. And this function is is a helper, hmm. uh, and you can get that in Haskell because you can export at the top of the module. You list the exports. Yeah, hmm. I wonder. I'm not sure why I feel like I don't need that in functional world, but I want it more in OO. Like I'm just sort of I'm figuring this out on the fly. Yeah, but it's kind of like why not just let anyone call any function they want? Like functions are kind of small pieces. Like, okay, you know that I have this function that does a sort of very specific thing. But if you want to call it, then whatever. It's not like you're digging into, like, instance data I have or something. Like, you're not getting at... I feel like I'm not, you're not going to couple to me in a weird way. You're just calling mm-hmm. this function. And so Haskell, getting back to Eiffel and Clojure, Haskell's type system is awesome, mm-hmm. but does not have preconditions and postconditions. And there's no way to stay in Haskell without explicitly writing it out that these invariants must hold before calling this function. Really? That, that's another thing that seems so Haskell-y, or like they, people be into that. Right, right. And you can do that with the type system, but it's not, it's not trivial. Huh. Uh, well, the type system would be at comp- compile time, right? Not, yes. Not runtime. That's true. Which is where the... Yeah, a lot of invariants are runtime. Yeah. Uh, so, Mike, I want to tell you about a thing that I like. Oh, tell me. What is it? Uh, it's DigitalOcean. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah. Do you know what they do? They do server stuff. They do. They host things. We actually use them. Do we? We do. On Upcase. Oh, that's awesome. Yes. Uh, so we have a service that uh, parses diffs. Uh-huh. Written in Haskell, actually. Oh, did, did Pat write that? Uh, basically, yeah. Pat and Joe, I guess, okay. I think wrote it on a Friday. 
uh, and essentially it was for re- real reasons, but it actually was just because they wanted to write some Haskell. Yeah, that's how Haskell and, goes. And get it deployed. Yeah. Uh, and but it worked. We deployed it, and it runs. And I actually don't even know like what the server name or IP address is or the credentials are for accessing the server. And it still works. And it's fine. Oh, the, yeah. And I think great. we can partly say that's because of Haskell. Yes. And partly because of DigitalOcean, just kind of like holding it down. Yeah. It hasn't crashed, hasn't gone away, and that's awesome. Because if there's one thing that I don't care about at all, it's managing servers. <laughs> or, or I guess just say I don't want to do it all. Okay, yeah. I care that they're up. Right. But I really don't want to actually have to make them stay up. Yeah. So they're, they're helping you out there. They're definitely helping me out there. Nice. I don't know how many nines we've actually achieved, but I think it's actually an infinite number because it's been 100%. Right. So far. That's not guaranteed. I can't promise you that many nines. So that's a bunch of nines with a one in front. <laughs> we've had almost 200% uptime right. since we switched to DigitalOcean. Yeah, that's that should be their new thing. Yeah, yeah, they should advertise that. We should just all companies should advertise mathematically impossible things. I appreciate that, really. Yeah, that'd be really cool. Yeah, I believe it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I mean, I've I've told the listeners before some of the stuff they have. They got uh, all kinds of things: big beefy servers with tons of CPUs. If you want it, nice. SSDs. If you want it, uh, big backbones that transfer data at crazy speeds, and you can buy all that. Or you can buy the cheap stuff. They have really cheap boxes, too. Cool. So you can do all kinds of stuff with DigitalOcean. And they are the sponsors of the show right now. Oh, that's great. So they're making this happen. Thanks, DigitalOcean. Yeah, it's been super great. So if you are into uh, servers that stay up and run and software that runs on them, you can head over to DigitalOcean.com. And when you sign up, make sure to use code GIANTROBOTS with a capital G and a capital R at checkout for a $10 credit towards your new account. So thank you to DigitalOcean for supporting the show. So uh, I saw a tweet from uh, someone I'm familiar with, uh, Reed Draper, about how he feels like Haskell systems are really easy to change once they're up and going, as contrasted with like dynamic systems, which I think, I think the implication was, I'm reading between the lines, that it's quick to get started with the dynamic systems, but then it's harder to change them later. Was that your experience? Uh, e- yes, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, of the idea of uh, programming language being easy to access as a beginner versus easy to access in a, as a professional or as like a, an experienced user of that language. Yep. Um, and Ruby definitely falls on the side of easy for beginners. And Haskell, very like to me, feels like it falls on the side of if you're building a large system, it's going to be great for that. But if you want to write Hello World, it's it, like Ruby is built for Hello World and Haskell is built for a large program. Mm. And so that's a trade-off that the programming language creator has to create. Absolutely. So have you are you fallen have you fallen a little bit out of love with Haskell then? I've fallen a little bit out of love with Haskell. Um, I don't I don't see it going in a place where I want it. And I, it's not clear to me what I want out of it, mm. uh, but it's not going there. Huh. It's becoming less academic and more in, uh, used in industry, which I, I'm very happy for. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish them the best of luck. I really enjoyed learning it and using it for the academic aspect of it and like learning it like there was lots of cool experiments going on with category theory and, and so on in there. They're still going on. It's just I'm not as excited about it. And I feel like the interesting stuff is now going on in in terms of security research and how to make programming languages more resilient to user mistake, programmer mistake, instead of having fun with math do you have a current like uh favorite new language is it the one you're working on <laughs> uh yeah, i'm still working on my language um is there a name for that it's called O. 
Okay. It's very simple. It's a pure object-oriented programming language in the same sense that Haskell is a pure functional programming language. Hmm. The syntax, sure, it's, it looks like Ruby uh, mixed with Smalltalk. Those are my syntactic inspirations. Mm-hmm. Uh, my semantic inspiration is Haskell, mm. where there is the I.O. separation, and you are building up an, an I.O. object in this sense. And it, it's, it's just pure, no mutation. It's just pure programming. Mm. Uh, it's an experiment. Mm-hmm. It's been fun playing with LLVM uh, and C, although LLVM is C++, and that's not fun. But the C aspect is fun, and LOVM is fun. Hmm. Favorite language outside of O? I surprisingly still enjoy Ruby. Hmm. <laughs> uh, it's been over 10 years of Ruby, too, and it doesn't make sense, but I still enjoy it. Mm-hmm. it you know, it's, it's a fun language. Ruby is love, and, and Matz loves you. Uh, and you know it's it's great. It's a really the 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 Ruby community, well, the Rails community, has really kept up with being interesting and trying new things mm-hmm. and trying not to be irrelevant. Uh, and I've enjoyed that, like following that and watching that. Mm. At the same time, I've also really enjoyed C. Uh, not a new language. It was in fact the very first programming language I learned in quotes. But I've relearned it, and I now understand it way better, and it's very simple. It's a very beautiful, simple, clever language. Hmm. And I like the massive number of libraries, but at the same time, the reduced abstractions and the feeling of I am interacting with the computer, even though I know that there's like a ton of abstractions in between C and the computer. Mm-hmm. It still feels like I am commanding the computer to do these things. Yeah, you're still close to memory. Exactly. Like, exactly. I know how many bytes this thing is. I know how many bytes this thing is. I know how many resources it uses in general. And I know what, like, I know what the computer is going to do when I tell it to do this. Mm-hmm. Like, Haskell is, is fantastic if the computer were a Lambda calculus machine, but it's not. And, and so it's interesting. Lots of people try Haskell to learn something new. I didn't. I tried Haskell because it was familiar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used familiar concepts. So I'm trying C to learn something new. And it's really exciting to like have that. Like everything is in the I/O monad. It's very exciting. Hmm. And plus, like again, the access to libraries is nice. If if we made the title of this podcast, everything is in the I/O monad, no one would listen to it. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> we could. That'd be an awesome way to drop the listening uh, numbers for this episode. Yeah, that's fine with me. <laughs> yeah, of course. It's a vanity metric anyway. Yeah, but we love all of you, beautiful listening people. But the beautiful ones, the, just only the beautiful ones. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, we have to go do stuff. Yes, we do. So let's stop. Yeah, let's go play baseball. Uh, watch baseball. Okay, fine. Yeah. I'll watch you play. Okay. But thanks for taking the time out of your busy summit to talk to me. Yeah, th- thank you for inviting me during your busy summit. Today's show was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Even though we're on the road, Tom is still making it happen, making it sound good, and making it go out on time. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to giantrobots.fm slash 159. Thanks for listening. Thank you.